Well, so far uh, in our study of the book of the Revelation, we've seen John, the author of this book, exiled to the Isle of Patmos. That's where John has been sent to. He's been exiled there. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 9. Also, we saw in a vision, uh, Jesus appeared to John when he's on the Isle of Patmos in his resurrected glory. We saw that in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And then we read the letters that Jesus dictated to John for these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those seven letters, if you'll remember, gave an an examination of life in those seven churches. Seven real but also representative congregations. Uh, These were churches struggling with um, a lot of different, you know, what's the word we like to use? They had issues. Everybody's got issues, right? These churches had issues, and those issues continue today. For some, uh, their first love for Christ had had grown cold. Still others were dealing with a moral failure, with uh, worldliness, uh, tolerating sin. They were struggling with spiritual deadness and and self-reliance. Some were facing persecution, uh, suffering. But in each situation, as we saw toward the end of each letter... They were called upon by Christ to conquer, to overcome. At the end of chapter 3, in verse 21, we read, To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also have conquered and sat down with my Father on his throne. That's Jesus' call to us. That was the call to each and every one of those churches individually. It's a call to the church throughout history. That's a call to us. Jesus calls on the Christian, the church, conquer. Don't be overcome, but conquer. I'm your Lord. I'm your Savior. Through me, you will conquer. You will overcome. And as the saying goes, uh, that's easier said than done, right? Sometimes overcoming doesn't seem so easy, does it? It's okay. You're in church. You can say, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's, it's hard. We still deal with sin, right? If there's any Christian here who doesn't deal with sin, I, I want to talk to you, okay? Okay. I want to have a long conversation with you. I'd really like to hang out with you and know how that works in your life. Uh, We still deal with sin. We experience the opposition of culture toward our faith. Uh, Our love for God may even begin to fade at times. And maybe you're struggling with the troubles and the hardships of life which, which can weaken our faith. Or maybe you find yourself more interested in and occupied with sinful pleasures. We even feel sometimes as Christians that we just can't overcome. We've been there. Uh, our need for chapter 4 is much the same as the need of seven churches to which John sent this letter. We need to see God as John describes Him on His throne in chapter 4. There's a reason. He's told all these churches, here's what's going on, here's your issues. Conquer and overcome. And then what does he do? He says, behold your God. That's what he does next. We need the words of this passage to reach out and take hold of our hearts as those who profess Christ. This is your God. Behold your God. Your God's only strong. And that's what we're going to see. So if you look at your handout, here's the main idea. At this very moment, right now, God is on His throne And He is worthy of praise and worship. Right now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but right now and forever. God is on His throne. And He's worthy of praise and worship. 
Then I have on your handout, I believe, beholding God's character and glory should also lead us to join in with the worship of heaven. That's what we're going to see here. This is a call for us. Behold your God. He's on His throne right now, church. Through all your issues, church, through all your issues, Christian, God is on the throne. He's worthy of praise and He's worthy of worship. Look at verses 1 through the first part of verse 6. We've outlined it this way. The one seated on the throne. Look at verse 1 there. It says, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Notice uh, the twice-mentioned phrase, after these things. When we're reading Scripture, when we're reading the Bible... One thing we always want to do is look and pay attention to things that are repeated. Uh, you repeat things to your children for a reason, right? Why? Because they have a tendency not to hear it, and we have to repeat things. Things that are repeated are things we want to, to focus on. So we have this phrase, after these things. Once at the beginning of the verse, <coughs> excuse me, once at the end of the verse. After these things, John says, uh, I looked. Well, what things? After these things refers to what John has just experienced. And what has he just experienced? The wonderful vision of Christ in chapter 1 and in the giving of the seven letters to the churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3. That's what he saw. After these things. After this. After the vision. After these letters that were dictated. He says, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. John is all of a sudden given a vision of something taking place where? In heaven. He's given that. He's, he, there's an open door. Remember, we heard that door being opened in chapter 3, right? There, if you'll open the door, I will come in. There's this open door, and, and he, he then hears something. Notice what John says he hears. He says, I, I hear the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet. That was Jesus speaking to John in chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. That same voice. John says, I hear it again. John once again hears the voice of Jesus. Jesus opens the door of heaven and he tells John and he tells us, the church, to look. Jesus tells John, notice what he says, come up here. And I will show you what must take place after this. After those things I've just shown you. Here's what's going to take place. Now, uh, those words come up here indicate that Jesus is calling uh, John there. He's calling him into the heavenly realm. And it is there that Jesus, it says, will show John what must take place after this. There's a reason he's calling John. I'm going to show you, John, this letter that... You're taking back to the church. Here's what, here's what they're going to see next. John is going, excuse me, Jesus is going to show John what must take place after this. Again, that free phrase was used previously in chapter 1, verse 19. He says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are take place after this. He's telling John, I'm going to give you these things in increments. The things that you have seen refers again to the vision that John had of Jesus in chapter 1. Those that are refers to the state of those churches in chapters 2 and 3. And those that are to take place after this refers to the events that Jesus is going to show John and that John records from chapter 4 all the way through chapter 22. This is what... Jesus is going to show John. That's what he's telling him in verse 1. In verse 2, 
John says, At once I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. He says, At once, immediately. John tells us, What does he tell us? He says, I was in the Spirit. Uh, this phrase will appear four times in the book of Revelation. Here, it was in chapter 1, verse 10. It'll appear again in chapter 17, verse 13, and chapter 21, verse 10. So again, there's a repetitive, there's a phrase being repeated here that should draw us, uh, draw our attention to. Each time John is taken into an experience when things are revealed to him, each time it occurs, it's, it marks a turning point in the book of Revelation. When you hear that phrase, every time in the book of Revelation, there's always a turning point in the book that's about to take place. So John sees the door open and he hears a voice like a trumpet calling him to see what must take place. Verse 1, suddenly... He's in the Spirit, and he goes on to tell us in verse 2, And behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. Now, throne, most of us, when we think throne, there's a lot of things run through our mind, right? The throne communicates authority. And the authority of the one seated on the throne is absolute. John says, I saw a throne set there in heaven. That word throne, again, repetition, will occur over 40 times in the book of Revelation. Three-fourths of the time that word appears in the New Testament is in the book of the Revelation. Now, we need to remember that the things that John sees are not to be taken literally, okay? The book of Revelation is highly symbolic. Well, everybody, if you've read the book of Revelation, you read some things, you're like, well, that's kind of weird. It's not to be taken literally. There's some things that are, but a lot of things are to be taken figurative. They, they, they are of real places and real events and real persons and things, but they are described figuratively, symbolically. The truth represented in the symbols. The truth is represented in the symbols. They're representative of something. In other words, this is not a literal throne in heaven. You're saying, well, it says it is. Well, God is a spirit, right? He doesn't need a chair to sit on. He doesn't need to rest. Again, the throne symbolizes authority. The throne symbolizes power. They represent governing authority. That's what this is representing. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1 says, I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne. And then Psalm 47 verse 8 says, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. God is not seated on a throne. Literally, it's saying that God is king. He is the governing authority over everything. What is communicated here is God's governing authority, God's sovereignty, God's rule over the affairs of the world. His throne stands. His rule and His reign is forever. That's what we're to get the picture of here. That's... Behold your God. Here He is. And John tells us more about the one seated on the throne in verse 3. Uh, keep in mind, again, um, I, I'll probably say this again, that the description we see here is symbolic. Okay? So John is using symbolic language to describe God. Stop. Let me just stop here. He's using symbolic language to describe God. Our God is so awesome that symbolic language has to be used to, 
to describe Him, and, then, and, and yet it still falls short of who He is. He's using symbolic language to describe God. The vision is given in order to teach us about God. Are you ready, church? Behold your God. John, write this down. Take this to the church. These are the things that are good for us to know about our God. Remember, the churches have got issues, right? They're going through a lot of stuff. They've got issues. And Jesus says, conquer, overcome. And then we get this vision. Behold your God. First, this vision pictures God's value and His beauty. His value and His beauty. And He who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Or some of you have a translation that uses the word Sardis. Some of you men are going, okay. Some of you women are more into the jewelry thing. You're thinking, ooh, pretty. Right? I, I, I feel your pain. Man. I, I go with Debbie somewhere. I, I hang with her everywhere she goes. She goes in the jewelry department. It just drives me nuts because everything looks the same. I just can't. I'm like, I'll be over here. If you see something you like, just, yeah. But it just, I just can't. I don't know, I just can't get my mind focused when I go in there to look at jewelry. Jasper and carnelian are are precious stones. That's the point here. They're they're beautiful. They are precious stones. Jasper is usually red or yellow or brown in color. And it's, it's, it's neither transparent or clear. While carnelian or sardis is a reddish brown stone that that is clear or semi-transparent. John sees something like precious stones that he can't fully see through, probably glowing with this red and yellowish and uh, brown light. And the point of describing God like this, these stones is to say that God is beautiful and He's valuable. When you think stones like that, when you see those, when you're in the jewelry department, ladies, what are you thinking? Ooh, wow. That's the point here. God is beautiful and He's valuable. To have God, to have God, and by the way, when you get saved, that's what you get. You get God. And some of us kind of yawn at that after we've been saved for a while. When you're born again, when you're saved, you get God. To have God and nothing else is still to be rich in the most meaningful way. These stones also highlight God's beauty. Beautiful things delight us, right? God's beauty satisfies. It delights us like nothing else can. That's the point of what's being said here. God is beautiful. And it delights us. He delights us like nothing else can. Now, as I was looking through this, I'm thinking, God could reveal Himself or given us a picture or given John a picture and passed on to us. Why would He reveal Himself this way? Why would, why would God want us to know these things? Here's why I think He reveals Himself this way. It's to remind us in pursuing Him, we pursue that which is of the greatest beauty and value in the world. God is the one who can delight our hearts more than all the appeals of the world. That's what God's saying to His church here. And as a point of application... This is what you need to hear when you're tempted by sin. How many of y'all get tempted by sin? Again, if you don't raise your hand, come see me. 
The next time sin calls to you, the next time sin promises that happiness is found with it, tell yourself it's not sin, but it's God who's the most valuable thing, the most precious thing. This is also what we need to hear when we're half-hearted in the way we live for God. Or maybe you, you feel bored with God, as I said earlier. If that describes you today, then you need to ask God to reorient your heart. Maybe some time in His Word would do that for you. Let me invite you to consider for a moment the most beautiful thing you can imagine. Some of you ladies are thinking the jewelry department. You've, you've got your eye fixed on something. Think of the most beautiful thing that you can imagine. Now take that beautiful and multiply it by infinity and we might be getting close to what John saw here. We might get close to what John saw. This, this week I was reading and in the Smithsonian Institute in Washington, D.C., they have what is called the Hope Diamond. Any of y'all ever seen that? I've seen a picture of it. I've never seen it up close. The Hope Diamond, and again, ladies, forgive me, I'm dangerous when it comes to jewelry. I'm ignorant when I speak. Uh, its weight is 45 carats. I'm assuming that's a bunch, right? It's valued at $250 million. One diamond. I saw a picture of it. It's blue. It's about that big. I was listening and reading about this diamond. It says when people see that, they kind of just like, they gasp. It's, it's, it's like they're in awe of this big blue diamond, the Hope Diamond. Go home today and Google it, okay? And look at that diamond. I, I did. And what I could see was a pretty amazing thing to see. God is more beautiful and valuable than the Hope Diamond. God is the one to be in awe of. God created the Hope Diamond. There is no defect in God. He is perfect. He is 10,000 times lovelier than the most compelling thing that tempts you. Whatever it is that tempts you, God is better than that. And that's hard for us to get our minds wrapped around, right? In the moment, we're thinking this is what's good for us. But no, God is better. When that sin comes, when that temptation comes to sin, we need to be thinking God is better. Verse 3 says, And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. The rainbow, most of us are familiar with that, reminds us of the sign of God's covenant not to destroy the earth with a flood in Genesis chapter 9. When we hear rainbow, that's what we think of, right? It's a symbol of God's patient mercy. When you see rainbow, we need to be thinking the mercy of God. Uh, um, over the last several weeks, I've been listening to a music CD that just over and over and over, and uh, they talk about a, um, a particular song they're going to sing, and it talks about the rainbow. They mention the rainbow in here in, in the song, and the guy gives a description of the rainbow that we find in the Old Testament. He says the word for rainbow in the Old Testament is not like bow you wear in your hair. It's like a battle bow. Think about it. When you go outside and you see the rainbow, which way is that bow bent? If it had an arrow in it to shoot back, which way would it be shooting? Back up, right? It's a battle bow. God shot the arrow 
at Himself and took our sin. That's what that's talking about. It shows us God's mercy. God pulled the bow back and He shot the arrow at Himself and took His own life on the cross to show us mercy. It's a symbol of God's patient mercy. The rainbow is also a sign of God's faithfulness, right? Never destroy the earth by flood again. God is faithful to His Word, faithful to His promise, faithful to His covenant. Now, this doesn't mean that God will not carry out justice on those who reject Him. But it does say that God will show grace and mercy toward His people and they will not suffer His wrath as those who reject Him will. Understand? God is merciful. But God is also a God of justice. And those who turn from their sin and trust in Him, God will show them mercy. But for those who continue in their sin and reject Him, there will be no mercy. There will be His wrath. I think, thinking about that rainbow this week, I thinking it's good for our hearts to dwell and ponder that God is a God of mercy. Mercy is, is part of God's character. When we pray for God to be merciful, to forgive our sin, we're not asking Him to do something He's not. In John's vision, the very throne of God is surrounded by mercy. That's what he's telling us. Behold your God. He is surrounded by mercy. God is a God who forgives. And I think what we're seeing here is this should encourage us to come to Him without hesitation. Maybe as we study through the seven letters to the churches, you, professing Christian, have been convicted of sin. If you come to God, you'll find a God who will show mercy and forgiveness. I think that's the picture we're seeing of our God here. Next, the vision pictures God's supremacy. Verse 4 says, Around the throne were 24 uh, thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now, (coughs) as you can imagine, there's a lot of debate as to who these elders are. Okay? I'm not going to go there. Okay? I have an idea. But no, anybody who has an idea who they think they are doesn't say with certainty that's who it is. Some say they're angelic beings. Some say they're human, belie- human believers who have gone on to heaven and that's who they represent. Uh, I think in studying and listening to that, a good case could be made for either one. However, uh, are you listening? I don't think deciding who they may be is as important as what they do. How they function should be the focus. Uh, One thing is clear about these elders. They're they're reigning in some way. They sit on thrones. They wear crowns on their head. It's a picture of royalty. But notice that the reigning elders have their thrones positioned around God's throne. The elders encircle God. Where's God at, church? At the center. And I think if we could ever get that figured out, we'd be a whole lot better off as Christians and as the church. God is the supreme one. Even the rainy encircle God. They orient themselves around God, not the other way around. You ever have a problem with that? God's here for me. God is at the center. In verse 10, the elders even cast their crowns before Him. All authority belongs to God. He's the reigning one. God is at the center of everything. Suppose one night, you're watching the world news, and they go to a picture, and they show Queen Elizabeth, 
Kim Jong-un. Man, I'm glad I don't have that name. Vladimir Putin. I'm glad I don't have that name either. And Donald Trump. And all of them are circled around a person and they're taking their crowns off and they're landing before him. What would you determine about, about, about the person in the center? You would determine that person was unlike any other. He's supreme above them all. And so it is with God on His throne. That's what's being pictured here. It's not as much important about who they are. I'm not saying it's not important, but what they do is what we need to be focusing on. And to this point in John's description of what he saw in the heavenly throne room, there's, there's been no action. But the action starts in verse 5. From the throne come, or excuse me, came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. This sounds like a lot what you would read if you went to the book of Exodus chapter 19. If you'll remember there, God, uh, there God came down on Mount Sinai after He brought Israel out of Egypt. And at Mount Sinai, as Israel gathered around the mountain, what happens? There were these peals of thunder and flashes of lightning that came from God's throne. If you read the book of Exodus chapter 19, you'll see that. The lightning and thunder were not these soft rumblings or these weak flashes of light. We should think ground-shaking thunderclouds and just blinding flashes. I'd say the kind that make children cry and make adults uncomfortable. You ever been in one of those thunderstorms before? Here in Revelation, all these are symbolic of the awesome power and strength and majesty of God. The vision John's getting is he's being said, this is what it's like to come in contact with God's power. No one can stand up under God's power. What's he? He's just been talking to churches, right? Conquer, overcome, behold, this is your God. And yet, we should see God's power as a, as a precious truth. A truth that makes Him worthy of praise that He receives here in chapter 4. It reminds us that God can be trusted to bring history to the end that He's promised. There's a coming, a day, a final victory for God's people. It's coming but also final punishment for those who are not His people. God is powerfully able to keep His promises. That's what's being pictured here. Look again at verse 5. There's another attribute we see of God. (coughs) And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, in chapter 1, verse 4, we saw that uh, those same words, seven spirits of God. Uh, The reference to the seven spirits are, are... Once again, references to the Holy Spirit. John sees God on the throne and the seven torches before the throne are the visible representation of the Holy Spirit. And the number seven we know represents what? Fullness, completeness, perfection. Here's the Holy Spirit in whom the fullness of God dwells. And remember there are seven representative churches to which the book of Revelation is written. So here's the Holy Spirit perfectly and completely sufficient for the needs of the whole church. That's what's being pictured here. Church, you have the Spirit of the living God that dwells in you as individual Christians that make up the fellowship. That is completely sufficient for you to do the work that God's called you to do. With our God, there's no lack for His people. The focus here is on the Spirit's power about what God has promised to do through us through that Spirit. 
In verse 6, we see another attribute of God. And that is that God is totally victorious. John next tells us in verse 6, there's something about the throne. Something John says, he says it's like a sea of glass, like crystal. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. How many of you have ever been fishing or standing near a a lake and the water is, is really calm? What is it you say? The water is smooth as glass. Again, this is symbolic. Uh, The sea, S-E-A, in Jewish thought was symbolic of chaos and evil. Even in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, there is that idea. Because in Revelation chapter 13, it's out of the sea that John sees the beast rising to speak blasphemies and to see the nations. The sea is symbolic of evil, Okay? But here, what's the sea doing? Completely calm. Still and at rest before the throne of God. There's no doubt about it. In our world, there's still evil and chaos, right? (coughs) But here's what you as a Christian need to understand. God reigns in sovereign majesty over it all, regardless of what we see going on. The sea is calm at God's feet. Do you see that? If if you will, here's a safe harbor for us in all of our uncertainties of life. God is on His throne. Before Him, the raging sea is calm like crystal. That's what He's saying to us. In Revelation 21, we're told that one day there will be no more sea. One day all things will be made new. Evil and chaos will be gone forever. Until then, I think what we tell ourselves here, what God is telling us here is, remember, Christian, your God reigns. He's he's on the throne. He reigns over the raging waves of chaos and turmoil that come upon us all the time. God is on His throne. How many of you have been through a raging battle recently, or right now you're going through one? God is saying, I'm your God. I'm on the throne. Look to me. Notice in the latter part of verse 6 through verse 11, you have the worship of God, or the worship of the one seated on the throne. Now, having moved outward from the throne, from verse 2 to the first part of verse 6, it seems that John goes back to the throne in the second part of verse 6. He says, And around the throne, and on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. John sees these four living creatures and they're full of eyes. These beings, uh, whatever they are, are worshipful. And they have the same characteristics that we see in Isaiah chapter 6. Remember? All them standing around and, and, and crying, Holy, holy, holy. The same description is there. Even in the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 1 and chapter 10. Ezekiel talks about these cherubim. He uses the same description as we see here in Revelation. Notice it says there that John describes what they were like. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. (coughs) Excuse me. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. 
the three of these living creatures that are described like animals are not called, notice this, they're not called an ox, or excuse me, a lion, an ox, and an eagle, but they are said to be what? Like. There's a big difference. They're like these animals. And the third is said to have what? The face of a man. The point of these descriptions seems to be the way these four living creatures reflect the glory of God. That's what they're doing. They're reflecting the glory of God. Something about God is captured by the likeness of these four living creatures. God is noble and royal and the king, just like the lion. When we think of ox, what do we think of? Strong, large, exercising great power, a servant to the benefit of others. Uh, Man here is the crown of creation. And only man has a face in this vision, which is symbolic that he's intelligent, rational, and he's spiritual. He's the pinnacle of all that God made. And when we think of eagle, the eagle soars in the heavens. And often uh, in the Bible, an eagle represents deity. He's the mightiest among the birds and the swiftest of God's creatures. All these symbolically represent God in these ways. In verse 8, more important than their description is the activity of these servants of God. Again, that's what is important here. We can sit and speculate all day long who these things are and what exactly they represent, but it's what they do is what we're called to look at. Look at what the living creatures are about. (coughs) And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And here's what they do. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Just like those seraphim in Isaiah 6, day and night, the living creatures never cease to say what? Holy, holy, holy. They just didn't say it three times. In Hebrew language, when you put the word together three times, it means a continuous act. They were doing it all the time. How do we know that? Because it says they never cease to confess the everlasting holiness of God. They're continually, day and night, they never cease to do that. They're continually giving praise to God. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. And they talk about God being forever and ever the Eternal One. Notice what they say. Who was, who is, who is to come. Behold your God, church. This is your your God. How do we... Again, we can look at this and we can speculate a lot of things about what all this is going on, but the focus is the worship that's taking place here. And the way we should look at this is is that God's holiness is absolute. God's holiness is the number one characteristic of God because out of God's holiness flows everything else about God. His love, His wrath, His justice, His mercy. God's holiness is absolute. Here's what you and I need to come to understand. God is personally offended at our sin. And there's only one mediator between God and man. And this will become clear next week in chapter 5. But I have to tell you now, God will satisfy His holiness against your sin one way or the other. He will do justice. His justice will be done against your sin in hell forever. Or you'll place yourself under the protection of Jesus, the one and only mediator between God and man. Here's what I want to say to you. If you're here today and you're lost, 
and you've never turned to Christ, if you'll run to Jesus, if you trust in Jesus and place yourself under the death, His death on the cross, the penalty He paid for the, your sin on the cross, God will account that to your life and you'll be right with God. If you don't trust Jesus, you'll pay the penalty yourself. And you know what the penalty is? The wages of sin is death, eternal death. If you choose to pay for your sin, you will pay it for all eternity. It will never end. So here's my call to you today. If you've never trusted in Christ, why don't you trust Him today? Why why would you say no to Him? He's shown the greatest love. And God right now is showing you mercy and granting you this opportunity. You are not here by accident today. Everyone who sits here is here by divine appointment to hear the gospel preached. And the Bible is clear. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It didn't say might be. It says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And my call to you today, if you've never done that, why don't you do that today? Why not call on Him today? And as these living creatures sing praise, notice the elders' response in verses 9 to 11. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. Whenever the living creatures, notice this, whenever they give glory and honor and thanks to the one seated on the throne, which is always and forever, what is the response of the 24 elders? It's worship. Verse 10, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne. The praise of these four living creatures acts as, if you will, a a channel of praise for these other 24 elders. The 24 elders fall down before God who sits on the throne. Falling down before a person is an act of respect. That's what that means. This person, I respect. He's in a position of authority. We, We are made to bow down. One of the happiest places a Christian finds in this life ought to always be among God's people on the Lord's day, singing God's praise, coming before Him, bowing before Him. We were made to worship. That's what we're to learn here in Revelation chapter 4. Behold your God, worship Him. Our greatest joy will always be found in the praise of our great God. Notice at the end of verse 10. What these elders do with the rewards Jesus promised. Don't miss this. To those who overcome. They use their crowns to praise God with. He's the one who deserves credit for the crown. What we receive from God, we ought to joyfully give back to Him. We didn't earn it. Nothing we have should be withheld from the one on the throne who's majestic, awesome, and holy. We don't withhold anything. We, we give it all back to Him. Now here, here's the application. Are you ready? Do you want to win crowns that you can use for the praise of God one day? Some of you are going, well, yeah. I want to win those crowns that one day I can use for the praise of God. Are you ready? That's the best possible motivation we could have to pursue holiness with our lives. Pursuing Christ's likeness. Every victory over sin on the way to heaven will become one more crown for you to place at the feet of Jesus at the throne one day. 
The next time you're tempted to sin, the next time you're, you're called on to make a sacrifice or, or you're faced with compromise, pray that the Lord will remind you that what is before you is an opportunity to win a prize that you can one day place at the feet of Jesus. The next time a sin comes that wants to pull you away and move you away from holiness, you need to say, this is a chance for me to gain another crown that one day I'll lay at the feet of Jesus. On that day when we see Him as He is, when we are all just like these elders and the living creatures, we'll wish, listen, we'll wish we had more crowns to lay at His feet. We'll wish we had more. Verse 11. Worthy are You, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. The words... uh, Worthy are you were used uh, in Rome to greet the emperor when he entered the city after a battle. You can read of all the battles in the, in the, in the Roman Empire when the, 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 the emperor would march back into town. That were the words they would always say to him. Worthy are you. And later on, the words, our Lord and God, the emperor Domitian was responsible for this cult worship. He had those words added to that. So when they would march back into the city, they would be shouting, Worthy are you, our Lord and God. And you're thinking, well, how foolish is that? Which I would say, yes. John and these heavenly beings are making a point to the church that there is only one Lord and only one God, only one who is worthy, the God of heaven, who sits right now on His throne. Why is He worthy to receive glory and honor and power? Verse 11, for He created all things. God is the Creator. This is His world. Right? This is God's world. He makes the rules. He makes the guidelines. He says, this is what we do. God is the Creator. This is His world. He's to be worshipped. And by your will, they existed and were created. See, God willed and all of creation happened. God wills it and creation not only happens, but it continues. If He had not willed, there would be nothing. And if He continues not to will it, there will be nothing. And here's what I would say to us here today. You're still here today because God willed it. That's the only reason you're sitting here on the pew today is because God willed you to be here. You're here because God said, this is what I want for them. This is what I want for this person. Revelation 4 Shows us the world as it should be seen for us. Praising the one who sits on the throne. And in doing so, it calls us to live now so that we will proclaim God's glory to Him now and forever. He is worthy. Trust Him. Take the living creatures at their word. He is holy. And join in worshiping Him with them. Let's pray.